Blog Talk Radio. He's a man who's going to tell you like it is. You can never be afraid of something that you don't know about. Now that's ignorance. And for us, ignorance is not bliss. He's a man who's not afraid to talk about the real issues and not skate around it. Don't you think it's about time that you got tired of where you are? I mean, you have got to be ready for God to do something for you and let him move. He's a man who loves his God, his country, and his people. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not too fond of the political state of the world, and particularly the U.S. as it is right now. But if you want change, you have to make it happen. You can't keep settling for less than what you ought to have. He's a man who's sowing seeds of life, love, and liberation to anybody who's willing to hear. There comes a point in time where everybody just needs to shut their mouth up and listen to God. And God is the one who will lead us, and God is in all truth. He'll tell us everything we need. That covers every area, every facet, from politics to church to you name it. God's got it covered. He's a man that seeks the heart of God for the people of God. You're listening to Zero Today with Pastor Lorenzo Neal. Good morning and welcome to Zero Day. I'm your humble host, Dr. Lorenzo Neal, hailing from Cajun Land, USA, here presenting you with Season Wisdom, Insight, Empowerment, and Liberation, promoting a knowledge that's engaging and transforming, and helping you, our listeners, to knowing and connecting the world around you. Um, we're live on Facebook. I more and hi, Rosie. Uh, good to see you. Thanks for joining. Thank you everyone for joining. We appreciate you for tuning in. You uh, uh, are watching by live Facebook stream. You can uh, leave comments there. I'll try to read and catch up as much as you can. If you're listening to the talk show, you can join us on this illuminating journey by dialing 347-237-5230. That's the number to call to get your thoughts, commentary, dialogue, whatever it is. Two cents, four cents, six cents a dollar. Get that on the air. Uh, that way, uh, by way of Blog Talk Radio, you can also follow us on all our social media. Um, I want to encourage you to go to the Zero Network page on Facebook. Go there, like it, and follow us all on um, on Twitter. Uh, Dr. Lorenzo Neal. I'm on Twitter at Lorenzo T Neal. The show handle is at Zero Radio. Um, so you can follow us all there on all our social media uh, outlets. Go visit my webpage, Um, And if you haven't ever gotten a copy of my book, you go get a copy of my book, A Breach in the Family. It's been out for a while. I don't really talk about it that much, but you can get a copy. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you for tuning in. Appreciate it. Get a copy of the book, uh, Breach in the Family, there on my website. also available on Amazon.com. We have other things, uh, projects coming out. We have a, a book of meditations. Actually, uh, it's, uh, pastors' words from the bulletins uh, at the church. We did, you know, back in the day, pastors used to put their words in the program and the bulletin. So uh, we've taken a collection of those and we are putting that in book format. That should be out. Uh, I think it'll be out in April sometime. So be looking for that. And we have a couple other manuscripts that we're working on. Um, Hopefully, one the working title for one is called uh, "Where the Stones That Mute That Mean Something." Uh, going to talk a little bit about that today, um, but not going to get too much about it. And then the other one is a speech that I did at the Black Nonbelievers uh, fifth year anniversary uh, event in Atlanta, Johnson. I want to give a shout out to Mendisa Thomas, who is the uh, president and founder and all big dogs non believers I had the opportunity to share at their event and my speech from that my presentation from that event we're putting that in book form uh, if you have never heard it you can go to uh, uh, it's there so you can listen to it critique it out to hear that because <laughs> you know how rare is it that a Christian pastor gets to engage uh, in a non partisan way with uh, persons outside, not even humorous, humanists, all of that. And uh, I tell you, they are loving people just like everybody else. But anyway, 
So those are some of the projects that we're working on, uh, and we're soliciting your support as always. You can support us on that. Uh, uh, one of the best speeches ever. Oh, you're too kind, Cheryl. Thank you. And uh, uh, let me give Cheryl Abrams a shout out. Cheryl Abrams, um, she's she's some everything. Uh, wonderful evaluator and author. Um, you can get her book. Uh, she can't think of it. I have her book, and I, I, I think I have both of her books, but I definitely have her first book. And uh, Cheryl Abel. Hi, uh, Roz. Uh, uh, Roz Collender, give a shout out to her and her sh- uh, her Facebook Live that she's been doing, Rosalind Speaks. I tell you guys, got to tune into that and what she's talking about. Uh, very, very big. Uh, Dr. Vanessa. Thank you for joining in. Appreciate uh, Sister Lynn, my wonderful member. Thank you for tuning in. Um, so if you see the topic, you, uh, what we're talking about today is we're talking about our history, our narrative. Basically, who controls the narrative, controls the identity. And with com- regarding black America, uh, who's controlling our narrative? Therefore, that's the question we're asking. Who's controlling our narrative and who's uh, – <laughs> And who is contributing to how we identify as black Americans. Uh, But before we go any further in the show, I want to take this moment to express condolences to the family of Dr. John Cherry, who was the longtime, he was the founder and pastor of the Full Gospel AME Zion that later became known as, uh, I think, From the Heart Ministries. Uh, If you ever watched BET back in the day, you saw black preachers shine. That was that was the that was the time you had people like Frank Madison, uh, who is now Bishop Frank Madison. You had T.D. Jakes. You had Dr. John Cherry. You had even Creflo Dollar. You had um, uh, Lance Watson. Um, you, you had a plethora of black preachers of renown on that network. On not just on Sunday mornings. <laughs> But uh, a lot of them were on Sunday mornings, and uh, Dr. Sherry was one of those who was on that uh, broadcast, and he was probably on several other networks, but I'm just speaking particularly, uh, you know, that's the one we had most access to. And Dr. John Cherry, uh, found he's, he was so unique in that being a part of African Methodism, he embraced uh, the mystical side of it, the spiritual side of it, the the, the um, the charismata of it and stepped out and uh, embraced that and found a way to integrate it into his ministry as African Methodist Episcopal Zion pastor. And he, he started that church there in, in Maryland area and it grew phenomenally and it blessed a lot. And it came, you know, it, <laughs> as in church politics, you know, big wigs didn't, like the fact that he was outshining them, I, and I'm speculating. I'm speaking speculatively here, but what ended up happening? He had he separated from the Amy Zion, and there was a conflict about property, as it as it always is, you know, because connectional church. Uh, if you don't know about a connectional church, this is how it operates. You're part of a connectional body, uh, but all property is held in trust of. The connectional church. So, like right now, if, uh, my members at New Bethel and I, if we decided to stop being AME, we can no longer worship in this building, even though the members built the building. The building and all properties related to New Bethel are in the trust of the AME church. You know, that's why we have a board of trustees for the Episcopal district and board of trustees for the connectional church to be aware of all of these things. But anyway, Ministry still prospered, and I kind of stopped watching. Uh, on, I watched stopped watching television largely because of the fact that it, it they stopped ministering. You know, they I won't say I'm speaking in generalizations, but pretty much they just got off track. You know, they got off track, off track, and so I just left it all alone. And never now, now and then they on on television, local. I I do watch. Local broadcast ministers, but uh, his wife and his family, and all the members that he served. Uh, I, I went to the Old Black Church website 
Sister Ann Brock, I want to encourage you all to go there. It's a wonderful site also. Um, and she mentioned she she uh, has a write-up about that, and you can go and read that. But we are losing some great people, some, some generals, as I guess you could call them, in the, in the body of Christ, in the black church, <laughs> uh, in Christendom altogether, but um, in the black church. So I just wanted to take that moment out. Also, there's a couple of other interesting articles that I, I read there on the Old Black Church um, website and um, a couple of websites regarding the Black Church. Um, the uncovering that we're facing as the church universal. This is apocalypse. This is the uncovering that's happening in the church universal with the not bring us to misconduct across the board. It's no longer been relegated to the Roman Catholic. We're seeing it in the Southern Baptist Church. We're seeing it in uh, <laughs> the Church of God in Christ and the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, in the AME Church, AME Zion. It's across the board now. Baptist, you know, it's across the board. And I think this is a wonderful opportunity for us to uh, not just uh, see a call for it greater transparency as humans in ministry and as humans in religious uh, vocation. But we also can see this is an opportunity to reconnect with the divine. And I, I think this is because when we see the sacredness of our human relationships and when those relationships are violated and in some cases, you know, very tragically violated, then that should be a call to us there should be a call to us to say, okay, what is more important, the organization of, or the human component of the whole organization? And I will tell you, uh, the human component is more valuable because without the human component, we have no uh, religious organization to begin with. So that's why I think this is a wonderful opportunity for us, those who walk actively, engage actively, and serve actively in Christian ministry. To one, say, okay, this is a greater problem than we thought or that we tried to cover up, and and to not cover it up. Uh, and it's going to be tra- it's going to be challenging, I believe. Uh, matter of fact, I know because it's challenging for me as a pastor to live a transparent life with those I serve. You know, you don't want everybody in your business, but at the same time, <laughs> you want to be able to say, okay, I, I'm accountable to you as a leader. As your shepherd leader, I'm accountable to you, but I'm also accountable to God as I am accountable to you. So if I am, if I am aware of anything that is violating you as a person in my immediate care, then I should I should you know I should be taking action on that, especially if it's regarding children, vulnerable persons. You know we should be in action to care for them. You know, but it's a wonderful opportunity, I believe, we are in now, and I think we'll rise to the occasion. I do. I think that this moment of uncovering, uncovering, as as, uh, as uh, difficult and challenging as it is, as the author and James wrote, writes, it's going to work for us. It, it uh, you know, let this moment in time. Let us go and let us endure it, knowing we'll come out of it better. So that's that's my hope and that's my prayer. Uh, Elder Marshall, thank you for joining. Reverend Mills, thank you for joining. Hey, Javon, my boy, thank you for joining. Appreciate all of you for joining today. Um, so, so I won't get off on a rant. I want to make sure that I stick to the topic at hand. We are in Black History, Black Heritage Month. This is the last full week uh, that we will have in this month. And um, I just to take this opportunity to help us uh, do greater reflection, exploration, and uh, discussion on who we are. And then I, I'm going to do it from 
uh, historical oratorical perspective and from a, a church perspective because the the black church it plays a uh, a great role in how we identify black folk. It's, you know, we can't so the question, you know, as I was reflecting and I was reading through a lot of the uh, uh, sources that I, I may use, and, you know, that got to me, got me to thinking on this, uh, I thought about as a kid growing up um, and black, the Black History Month was new, you know, uh, it, it, it was not really embraced. It was, it was celebrated. It was observed. But, you know, it was kind of new when I was coming up. And, you know, up until this point, I got into high school, I guess that's what I would say, that it really began to take on the form that it now has in the early 90s. Prior to that, the, concept, the concept of Black History Month still kind of new, even though, you know, Carter G. Wilson is credited as having established the Black History Week and, you know, all of that. Uh, but for, for a very large part, you know, um, it was relegated not to uh, us as a people in the country. And, uh, and then it got relegated to only first. We only observed and celebrated those who had done first. You know, the first African-American this, the first African-American that, first this, that, blah, blah, blah. And that was mostly what it was relegated to. Um, with pockets of historical uh, anecdotes, you know, like the Little Rock Nine, um, uh, Ruby Bridges, uh, uh, and now we get the Black Wall Street um, uh, and things of that nature. And and, and that's that's good. That, that was great because you know because of those first, I I got to explore different aspects of our history. I, and I have to give credit to. Uh, one of my high school teachers, Ms. Nancy Johnson, who's now resting with the ancestors. Ms. Nancy Johnson, along with all the other, uh, a lot of the other faculty members in my high school, uh, were very, they, they, they value uh, the heritage. Uh, Mr. White, who was one of my, uh, is not just a civics teacher, but he was also, I, I consider him uh, a major history uh, figure. He didn't do anything major, but he he changed the minds of a lot of folk who went on to do great things. Along with Mr. Walter Rush, I can I can go down the list just from my high school, uh, the faculty from my high school, who were very valuable in helping me understand and reframe and reshape my perspective of who I was in my existence as a black person. And um, but Miss Nancy Johnson, um, who's Husband was a pastor, still is pastoring, as a matter of fact, still pastors there in, in Monroe. Uh, she internalized the need for us to understand our history just beyond what was written down in the books. Because at the time, you know, the history wasn't that, the written history that was put in history books was still fresh. You're talking about the civil rights movement was only, it was, you know, the, it was, the remnants of it was still still there, you know, uh, uh, we, we were still under uh, desegregation when I was in school, you know, we were still on the, I don't like using this term, but we were still on the force busing, you know, so when I was in elementary school, I was bused, even though there was a predominantly black school right down the street in walking distance, uh, our neighborhood was divided, literally, <laughs> it was divided, so there were streets where if you were on this side of the street, you went to a predominant, you know, across the track to the to the to the school. And if you were on this side of the street, you went down the street to the black school. <laughs> you know, the, that was the feeder school for uh, our high school, middle school, junior high, and high school. And I didn't understand that then, but you know, as I grew up and I understood, I, I learned more. Man, I was eating up the history that Ms. Johnson taught us. Uh, about the city of Monroe, Louisiana at the time, and to 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 know what she knew, 
you know, and share with us, man, it put me in a different perspective again, you know, as, as a kid. And she went on to start the uh, uh, African-American Museum uh, there that's located in, in, in Monroe, Louisiana. And I had the opportunity, you know, she she had the collection. She had our, we would be in class. Now, we supposed to be doing English. <laughs> we were doing English. We were doing English. We published the school newspaper. But in, in all of that, we were also gaining a lot of information about the rich wealth of history from uh, in in our hometown, and it was presented to us in a narrative that was ours. So there was no <laughs> there was no mainstreaming it to to make other people appreciate it, to make other people uh, uh you know to make it other people not feel bad for not being a participant in our history. And I have, I believe that is what's happening now, uh, and that's why I, I asked the question: Is it our history? Is it our history and our narrative, or is it just our history that's being whitewashed? And when I use the word whitewash, and I'm not talking in any negative overtone or anything that like, I speak is simply in that it has been mainstreamed, it has been tempered to be wider received, will be received by a wider audience. So therefore, that's how you can get narratives uh, like we have in modern day black history, that children are being fed narratives that uh, I I believe are insufficient for identity. But then again, it's it's a whole different thing. Let let me, let me, um, Put again within context what I mean by the word narrative. Uh, I'm speaking uh, specifically um, within the idea of our cultural sharing narrative. Now, you know, if you if you are into linguistics and you understand the word narrative, where it comes from, the rare, and that the word, the root word, the Latin root word, actually means knowledge and skill or, or skill. You know, it depends. And the adjective is where we get that word narrare which is in English narrative and, and, you know, so we get that, that the idea of narrative being uh, the narrative being how it is presented. And, you know, I, I think you can just do a basic Wikipedia search, <laughs> Google, and you'll get an idea of, you know, the different forms of narrative. When I was studying, um, when I was in grad school and uh, my first graduate degree was in, in liberal studies and uh, the the first uh, I had dual it was it was dual I had music theory composition but uh, uh, the secondary uh, part of that was uh, rhetorical rhetoric and writing and it's now I think at the program it was at the University of Arkansas Little Rock the program is now called technical and professional writing but when I was there it was rhetoric and writing and so I um, in my rhetorical criticism class, I'll never forget uh, one of the one of the concepts we learned, and I still have the book. I, I still have that book uh, about rhetorical criticism. Yeah, yeah. See, I still have it. Uh, y'all can't see it, but anyway, still in my library. Uh, if you ever want to get it, this uh, this book is. Um, Sonia uh, J. Koss, a rhetorical criticism. Now it presents this book presents the different types of uh, means of presenting rhetoric. Uh, and I wrote a paper, but anyway, I'm trying not to get too far off. But anyway, um, so um, one facet of rhetorical criticism and rhetorical analysis. All together, you know, you have the three plots, you have the three um, um, layers to that ethos, pathos, and logos. Uh, and for our culture, for our culture traditionally, historically, ours has always been an oral history. And that's why the slaves identified the Bible when they were hearing. Stories of the Bible preached 
by learned preachers or unlearned preachers. They internalized those stories because they, you know, uh, they had this history of relegating their history oracly, orally. And they had the oracle we know as the the uh, uh, the griot, and, and and there's still griots today. I believe I I honestly I believe uh, the hip hop movement of today owes its credit to uh, our griots of yesterday, both those who did oral, those who did it musically, and those who just did it by story, to, you know, by telling the story. As a matter of fact. That's such a fun, uh, powerful concept. Narrative is such a powerful concept that we use that in conveying uh, what we want to happen. You know, uh, I'm trained in sharing my story as a gun violence uh, prevention advocate uh, with every town for gun safety. One of the things we do is we share our story. And, you you know, uh, every time you share your story, you're, you're availing a of yourself and a piece of your history, you know, and and a piece of your uh, other thing that was empowering to you or uh, life changing to you. But anyway, so um, from that perspective, from that perspective alone, when we're talking about cultural sharing and the oral tradition that comes with that, um, we know that from a, a biblical perspective up until. Uh, the words of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, were written down. They were transliter, you know, they were given orally. As same with the New Testament, uh, those walls, those collections, uh, narratives were written down, and you know, not the, not properly sourced, unfortunately. But you know, uh, it's not like the the those who wrote the Hebrew scriptures and those who wrote the New Testament scriptures. Uh, who put them down, written down, you know, they, they didn't properly, they, they had their sources and, you know, I don't believe that they actually thought it would get as far down in history as they did. So, but we have them. Uh, and the same thing with our oral tradition. Um, those who come, uh, those oral traditions that come from uh, the continent of Africa in the various tribal stories that have now come into our conscious in some capacity by way of, you know, we hear of Aesop's fables, we hear of uh, ancient African proverbs that are now, you know, we even see some of those ancient African proverbs in the book of Proverbs. Some were coming, you know, they came from different ways. We also hear um, in the retelling of what we call fairy tales. Some of those European fairy tales are retellings of ancient uh, African stories. We we this validated. You know, I wish I had more evidence of source material to present to uh, to. I I mean, you can Google this is a lot of the stuff you can just Google. Um, you're not gonna find pure source material, but you know when you do a uh, when you do a a, a reading. Uh, what, what, you know, when you when you're doing your searching, uh, you don't just want to get the first couple of sources. You know, you want to dig down deep and find reliable sources. But those reliable sources are there; they're they're there. So you know. But anyway, uh, so we know that uh, just as those stories that linger with us now, you know, you can you know the fairy tales, and some of them we cherish. You know, thanks to Disney, a lot of them have now become mainstream. <laughs> um, unfortunately, for 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 our history as Black Americans, that link to the narrative got you know it got interrupted. So so the link to the narrative and our heritage and our history has been misplaced. So excuse me, as our as our elders. Uh, as they transition on and they don't leave with us the oral traditions of our families, the oral traditions of our churches, the oral tradition of our communities, that gets lost and it gets replaced with something that, you know, is more modern. And by modern, I mean in the last hundred years or so. Uh, that's modern history as we understand it. Um, Modern history, I guess you can even go back uh, 
to the beginning of the empirical area era of the 16th and 17th centuries because that's where most particularly in America that's where most of our you know ideals and I, I, a sense of beginning starts also in the 16th and 17th centuries anyway I digress but that that history for the most part has been in some ways misrepresented and in other in other ways, just mishandled, because uh, we take it and we don't fully internalize it culturally, you know. But but then again, let me stop there. There are some things that we do internalize culturally. For example, uh, if you think of the black community, there's some automatic imagery that is going to come to you, you know. Automatically, you're automatically going to think, probably first and foremost, that they're all associated with the black church. You know, they all go to church. And when you put that imagery together, you have the, the church mother with the hat or the first lady with the hat on the first pew. Or you have the preacher, the black preacher, the, you know, typical hollering black preacher, you know, all that. Or you might have the black preacher with the, you know, the nice hairdo. <laughs> That gets me, man. Al Sharpton back in the day. Brother, power to you. Power to you, Al Sharpton. <laughs> I don't know how you wore that perm, brother, but you wore that perm, man. <laughs> I'm just picking on him. I admire, I admire Reverend Sharpton and the work that he has done and is doing. I don't always agree with a lot of what he has said or what he has done, but I, I tell you one thing, he has been consistent in what he is doing, so that's it's another tangent I didn't intend to get off on. Uh, there's value in a collective narrative. There's value in the collective narrative. I wrote a paper and published it uh, about uh, uh, a narrative for black boys introduced to them by way of a passage, a rites of passage program. And and I, I still want to follow. I, I've been seeking to develop that uh from just uh, abstract into concrete, you know. So, and 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 I know there are a lot of persons and a lot of organizations. There are a lot of people who who still have this idea of a, a rites of passage. I don't believe it's as mainstream as it needs to be in Black America. Uh, you know, there there is no there is no central rite of passage initiation for young Black boys, in, you know, across the board. And I believe that's one of the things that we need to introduce to them, largely because we can create the narrative for them as they go through that process. We can create the narrative for who they should be identifying as uh, and how they should identify. And, and in creating that narrative, it gives a sense of empowerment and liberation that will, I think, be more beneficial in the long term in addition to the education that they receive in public schools, private schools, parochial schools, wherever they go, you know. Uh, because you know, they're in dire need. We are in dire need. So a collective narrative, um, when we look at it culturally, from a cultural perspective, when we say uh, what is the history, For I, I use an example. Uh, I, my church recently celebrated its 90th anniversary a couple of years ago. And uh, there had always been a written history and if you go to most churches, most denominational churches, most, uh, uh, you know, older churches that have been around for a while, they have a written history. Uh, and uh, and in that, at least they should have a, re a written history. Uh, there's certainly an oral history, but in a lot of times there's a, there's a written history. And um, so the person who did the written history for our church, you know, it stopped around 1987, 1990, uh, somewhere in there. So that was the last, and that person, I believe, went on to go or you know transition, and they hadn't they hadn't kept up to date until we did the anniversary where uh, it was brought up to date, so we have a greater understanding of the history. Uh, but that history being written down gave me a sense of how I should pastor the church. And then we took that written history and put it into a visual history. So now when we when we did the actual church anniversary, 
not only did we have a written history, but we had a visual history. We had we had the pictures of the Brush Harbor, where what was the Brush Harbor that eventually became the, the area where the church now sits. We had the pictures of members, you know, early members of the church. We didn't have pictures of the founding members, but we had, you know, pictures of some of the early members who lived on, you know, lived well into life. And we have pictures of uh, after they, uh, you know, they tore down the wood church and built the brick edifice under the person of Reverend C.J. Johnson. Uh, and this is the building that we are currently in that was, you know, nearly 50 years, over 50 years ago. Pictures of them walking, you know, you know, walking, making the uh, the march to the new edifice. We have the, you know, pictures of worship at the time and, and all of that. And it was wonderful because it gave me a sense of, of a grounding for how to pastor this church. Uh, now I have a great understanding of the history of the church. I know how to interact with the people. I know the rich wealth of life that these people have been providing to this community for over 90 years. That, that was empowering to me as a pastor, and it helped me understand, okay, this is how we should be ministering to this community now. This is what the heritage was. This is what the history was, and this is where we are now and what we can do to broaden and further the work of the local church just within, and we, you know, I was res- restrictive in our ministry. You know, we're restrictive. We're, well, we're like, okay, this is where we are. This is who we're going to focus on. We have six, seven blocks that we're going to focus on in ministry. We're not going beyond that. We ain't trying to be a mega church. We're going to serve the immediate needs of the people of this community. And, you know, it's been working. It's been working so far. But, I said all that because in, that's the that's the Christian component of of that, and because of that Christian component, the church understanding their history and uh, writing their narrative, so that no preacher can come in and try to create their own narrative. Uh, and I think that's part of what's happening in the black church now. We have a lot of independent churches who are creating their own narratives and disconnecting from the broader narrative of the black church. But that's a whole other discussion today. A whole other discussion. Um, and, and doing so, I was wondering, okay, what what are, are the social narratives, uh, historical narratives that we can draw from? And I'm like, wait, didn't slaves? Weren't there some slaves who did that? Did some slaves write their narratives? And of course, the Library of Congress is rough with that. You can go to the Library of Congress and you can find narratives of. Let me pull some up. I I, I saw a few. Oh boy, my laptop is acting up. Uh, let's see, um, documenting the American South is a website that you can go to, and you can find collections of authors and uh, who were former slaves who um, who in their in that you know either in the last days some of them as I would read you know the some were. Uh, presenting their entire narrative before they were killed, executed. And that was grieving to me. Uh, some were egregious, of course, acts. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. But then there's there are things, that are, the narratives that, like that of uh, Andrew Jackson. And I'm not talking about the president, Andrew Jackson, but you have to go and look at And you read his narrative and, and the adventures that he went on. And, of course, there's the narrative of Frederick Douglass that, you know, I believe everybody should have that book. Every black person in America should have a copy of Frederick Douglass's autobiography, you know, compilations of several. Uh, And, you know, it depends on where you go because uh, there's some others who have reprinted it. Uh, I prefer that you go to the family and they can give you uh, one. Uh, Anyway, uh, who else? Of course, the Life and Labors of the Right Richard Allen, uh, founder of African Methodism. Um, the poetry of uh, Phyllis Wheatley, which is somewhat semi-autobiographical. Biographical, y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but so I went through and I read through and I did read through them. And I was like, wow, these persons were unlearned. And yet they, they picked up the skill to be able to tell their story. 
they were able to tell their story. There are a couple of narratives that were written, that were narrated by the the author, and the author is given credit even though they did not write it down. You know, just like some scripture. <laughs> Let me stop. That, that's a whole other thing. Um, but to think about these these persons who had endured great human suffering. Some escaped to their freedom. Some, after after receiving their freedom, write, wrote their stories. Uh, and later on in the 1930s, uh, there's a collection of recordings that you can hear from those slaves who were still living at the time when this technology came, uh, came about. And they were able to share their stories uh, and also with, with video, you know, the film and the records. Uh, you get a chance to, to see how valuable their narrative was to them. How meaningful their narrative was to them. How powerful and emotive their, their narrative was to them to the point that it was moving. You know, it, it, it is moving when you read the accounts and it's moving when you hear the accounts. And, you know, I think we should all be going and, and doing that. And I believe now that has been that that is gone. That that is gone. The idea that these persons' narratives of freedom, though though in print, you know, we don't have our grandmamas not doing it. Uh, our great grandmamas, great granddaddies, you know. That and that's about as far as I can go back. There are, there aren't that many great greats. <laughs> there are, but you know. Uh, that the oral history of our families are lost or I won't say non-existent it's just um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for it's, 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 it's just there it, it's, they, they know it but they don't share it and so the children coming up they go to grandma's house they don't know enough about grandma. You know, and in in I, I, in most cases, let me use great grandma because their grandmothers and I have to think about it, who are my age, just in their forties and you know their fifties, you know if their mothers are alive and their grand, grand their great grandparents. Uh, so I, I guess I just contradict myself then if they're well anyway, big mama, my dears. <laughs> uh, there are not enough big mama sharing. The story of the family, and and this age where the you know there's a greater greater um, ratio multi uh, race children or biracial children now, so it's it's even more imperative that they understand if they're biracial, you know, the 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 value of uh, their black side if they're black, you know. It's, it's, it's more pertinent now that they understand that because if they are biracial and they're, if they're the other side, the non-melanated family, uh, have a, a, a greater sense of their history, if they can trace their history back to uh, the daughters and sons of the Confederacy, and you know, or daughters and sons of the Revolution, some of them can do that. And I'm not saying all that, again, I'm speaking in generalizations here, but there's some families who, you know, white families can trace their, their their heritage back far, and unfortunately for us, many of us can only trace our heritage back maybe one or two generations. And in doing so, there's there's that disconnect. You know, we we don't know, and we're not trying to find out, and it's doing a disservice to us because the wealth of heritage that can be empowering to us. Is 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 fading away, and what's left, or, or not left, but what replaces that is a mainstreamed uh, and a whitewashed. And, and again, I mean that term within the context of more receptive for a broader audience. And that's why when you uh, when you hear about Dr. King's, I have a uh, I have a dream speech presented. At the March of Washington, you get just that just that soundbite of the moment. You forget the totality of why the, the march was organized to begin with. 
who were the organizers of the march, you know, A. Philip Randolph and, and um, Bayard Rustin and, and, and their contributions prior to that particular moment in history in Washington, D.C. What did A. Philip Randolph do that created him and empowered him to be able to, to have that platform? What did Bernard, uh, uh, y'all know, Raynard, uh, can't even say his name right now. <laughs> what did he do? And, you know, he was an openly gay African-American. He was an openly gay black man, scholar, advocate, engaged, but he was gay. <laughs> and that was a no-no. You know, he had to do everything in the background. He couldn't, you know, he'd be accepted today, <laughs> but not then. And think about also, you know, when we talk about uh, Rosa Parks, and we know the story, Rosa sat so that Martin could march, so that Obama could run. Yeah, yeah, that's what we tell. That's the narrative we present now. But the reality is that Rosa wasn't the first one to sit <laughs> and wasn't the first one. You know, hers was calculated. Hers was already schemed. It was, it was planned. It just happened to be a perfect opportunity, but it was already planned. The person who does not get credit is uh, Coletta. I can't remember her last name, but she was the one who actually did protest, you know, but because the narrative didn't fit the movement. You know, she was a teenage, unwed mother, pregnant. That didn't fit the narrative that they wanted, to, you know. So, you know, she was relegated to the annals of history, forgotten. Rosa got the seat. And, you know, but that's neither here nor there. Both of them did remarkable, and we should honor the legacy of both of them. Um, but again, it goes back to the narrative. Now, the narrative that is being presented uh, has been presented over the decades is that of Rosa, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but again, and, and it's the same thing, and I'll go back on to what I just said you know, Rosa said, so Martin can march and Obama can run. Uh, this, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was reluctant to lead or to even be a part of the movement. You know, he he was he he did so uh, under somewhat of compulsion by those in his community. You know, like hey, you're you're intellectual. They're, you're better. You know, you're you're doctor. You're trained. You'll be more receptive. You know. And, you know, he also had to embrace the non-violent, even though he had studied Tillich and although he had studied Gandhi, he had not fully embraced that because he had been under threat. He owned weapons. He was ready to, you know, he had the mentality, if they come for me, I'm coming for them. Then he had to be conversed and converted to the idea of fully engaging a non-violent approach. And I'm glad that he did, you know, because it, it worked. Had he been a little more vigilant and militant as some were uh, perhaps uh, trying to get him to be, you know, we probably would have been sat back a little while. Um, and then you have the narrative of President Obama, and, and I, I love I love the idea of, you know, the black president and all of that, and, and I love the fact that he was able to transcend the idea of race. He did that phenomenally, and the brother has swag. He has swag. You can't take that away. He and his wife are two of the most admirable persons in the country today uh, because of their swag. <laughs> uh, but the narrative that was presented to us as a country was that he, you know, he's black. But the actuality was no, he was privileged. You know, he, you know, he grew up in an, in the, in affluence. He spent most of his, you know, nurturing years outside of the country, you know. So, so when he came back, and yes, he had to, uh, particularly as he began to organize as a community organizer, he, you know, he had to adapt and take on that role. And joining Dr. Uh, Wright's church helped him tremendously, re, you know, reinforce the idea that yeah, I may be privileged, and I may not have been a part of the struggle of persons who identify as African. Uh, American descendants of slaves, but one thing I do know is that what I'm receiving here at, at Trinity Church of Christ, uh, 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 United Church of Christ, what I'm receiving here is empowering and liberating, and my black don't crack, and I'm going to run with it, and that's a good thing that he did, you know, and unfortunately, you know, 
even that narrative was taken over because the broader narrative of LGBTQ and everything else became a part of the identity. And it's still now we're we're finding, for example, and I hate bringing this up. I I don't want to bring this up. Uh, The Smollett, I think that's how his name, Jossie Smollett, uh, whatever, however you say his name, the idea that he tried to use both his sexual identity and his uh, racial identity to create this, you know, this this narrative for him, and we're seeing that narrative fall apart for him. It it, it, it speaks again to the idea that this narrative, our history, is 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 being hijacked, you know, and uh, we have to get back. We have to get back to this sense of a narrative that is benevolent towards us. It does just not give us enough to get by for a month. You know, does not just give us enough to see a few figures who did first, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong. We should celebrate that because it is a part of our national narrative. It's a part of our national narrative. I don't believe a lot of children today uh, know that that they may be descendants of slaves. Some, because of the darkness of their skin, assume that, well, you know, I got to be uh, descendants of slaves because of the darkness of my skin. But look at me, you know, I look at my skin, and I, I know the, her- the the greatness of my heritage, you know. Not all my folk were slaves. <laughs> my, not all my ancestors were slaves. Uh, you know, my my uh, my paternal, I mean, my maternal family is fair-skinned for the most part, you know. For the most part, they are fair-skinned. And, hey, I fit right in with them. But I, I said all that to say that as we as we close out this month in February, the one thing that we must do is we have to uh, say, okay, while while we're celebrating and while we're observing and doing all this, we have to dig deeper into this. There's a narrative that's missing. There's there's a narrative. That's missing, and and while while our history is mainstream now, and, and I'll tell you, this is this is probably the thing that's more uh, uh, frustrating to me is because folk want to identify with the history. By identify, I mean, you know, the cultural movements that that we began as particularly black, and we see those movements. Yeah, mainstream, you know, just an example, for example, just an example, I I know, I know something is over once it becomes mainstream, when they were whipping and nay-naying on, uh, like, Good Morning America or something like that, I'm like, you know what, that's it, <laughs> throw it away, when they were Superman and Soldier Boy and or whatever they called it, <laughs> and think about it, any other cultural dance, for me, being from Louisiana, when I see when I see uh, non-melanated brothers and sisters doing the cupid shuffle or the wobble, and I'm like, you know what? Y'all can have that now, yeah. Y'all can have that, yeah. Or the electric slide, you know what? That used to be the black weddings go to. Y'all can have that. <laughs> I'm saying that in jest. Please don't. But anyway, 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 I believe um, we have an opportunity now to be self-empowering, self-liberating. We have an opportunity to build on the history that we know. We know certain things, you know, and and though the narrative may have been watered down a bit to be more receptive and broader, we can cut that. And we can get, I'll say, we can say, okay, yeah, 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 folks, this is, that's the story, that's the gist of it. And I don't want to be like some, uh, recently I heard uh, a, a politician, uh, a national politician say that we should not be concerned about the facts, we sh- you know, the empirical facts, we should only be concerned about the moral argument. 
or uh, the moral facts or whatever or the moral narrative. And I can understand that to a degree, but the problem is if we just stick to that, we lose the totality. We lose the totality for us, you know, because uh, we need facts. We need facts. We need to be able to have solid saying, uh, solid things saying, this is us. And we don't need to take that for granted. We need facts. And we can, you know, we can go with a broader narrative. That's all good. But the, the meat of the narrative needs to be defined and regurgitated by us. And, and, and to be honest with you, there are more ethno historians who are not black, <laughs> who, who unfortunately uh, have taken leadership in there. And you got to, hey, no, I ain't mad at them because they've taken interest in us preserving our identity, preserving our heritage. And you got to be proud of that. I wish that, uh, you know, more black, young blacks would take an interest in becoming ethno historians and ethnologists and, and I don't even know if that's a word, but taking what we know, building upon that and empowering us and pushing the narrative out, making sure that the narrative is right, making sure that the knowledge is getting out there and that it is not uh mainstream to the point that it's just enough for them to, to know. And you know, unfortunately, I believe that's where we're going. Uh, I hate that that is the case, but I I I believe that's where we're going. Anyway, let me get out of here. The time is running out. I appreciate all of you for tuning in. Thank you so much. And I uh, try to be here every Wednesday at eleven. Uh, you can also I want to invite you to support me if you uh, so feel led to do so. You can do so by PayPal. Uh, PayPal uh, uh, information is. I think I put it in the link. If not, uh, uh, this video will be uploaded to YouTube. So if you're listening on YouTube, you uh, make sure that you like and subscribe, and you can uh, you can do that uh, there. Dingly do, doodly do under there. Uh, also, you can support me on Patreon, Lorenzo T. Neal Patreon. You know, however you choose to support me, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm trying to again, we've been doing this new format on Facebook Live and. Um, along with the live uh, on blogtalkradio.com slash zero today. So make sure you uh, support us, and um, we welcome all dialogue, you know, no trolls. <laughs> welcome all dialogue. And uh, we want to invite you to – what up, Frat? Travis, hey, man. We want to invite you to uh, join in our conversation, join in dialogue, share thoughts you may have, uh, topics you might have. All of that, we want to be as empowering as we can. As we stated, this show is about liberating us. You know, restriction is not liberating. And uh, we guys, it's time out for that. But anyway, thank you for tuning in. I appreciate all of you for joining. Um, share this video if you don't mind. Uh, and again, it will be on YouTube. YouTube follows on Blog Talk Radio. You can find archives from uh, all the way back to 2010. Um, also, Zero Network, Pastor Leo's Zero Network over there. You can listen to archive shows. Uh, and we'd love to hear from you. You can inbox me if you like. It's fine. If you'd like to hit me up personally by way of email, it's PastorRomenzoNeal at gmail.com. And we appreciate all of you guys. Thank you so much. And I got to get out of here. Blessings.
afternoon, Lupeta, at church, may I help you? 